right, you guys, welcome to The Dad Presents. Thank you so much for joining us here today. This podcast is brought to you by Pfizer and also the FBI and DEA, our new sponsors, because we have a great deal of passion and respect for big pharma and federal law enforcement. Code word, freedom is overrated for 20% off your over-the-counter drugs and your street drugs. I'm obviously kidding. This podcast, guys, is brought to you by sheathunderwear.com, the best underwear on the planet. You will love them. Your lady will love them. Go get them. Code word dad for 20% off. This podcast is also brought to you by the Expat Money Show, hosted by Mikkel Thorpe. It's an absolutely fascinating show. We'll touch on it a little bit later, but learn how to expatriate, um, get out of here, save your money, and uh, improve your life for yourself and your family. Now, guys, if you haven't yet checked out the dadanswers.com, please do so. We've got awesome parenting articles. There's no politics there, I promise. It's just all parenting all the time. Uh, in the show today, we have on science author Annie Murphy-Paul. And guys, this woman is smart, and you're going to love her except for some of you dummies who listen. It might go over your heads. But parents, listen. She's got great advice for how to make your kids smarter. It's, it's definitely a worthwhile listen. I learned a lot. I know that. I also read her book. Fantastic. We're talking about it with her. Um, so listen, yeah, if, wherever you're listening, uh, iTunes, uh, YouTube, uh, whatever, smash and like the follow button. Uh, I've learned from watching my kids watch YouTube all day that that's what I'm supposed to say because all those shows they watch about uh, ASMR videos, the worst, um, and videos of grown adults playing with slime or unboxing toys that are meant for children or annoying teens playing video games and narrating, they always, they always end by, or they start by, smash the like button. It's really annoying, but apparently it works because those guys are making millions of dollars and we're not. We're making hundreds of dollars. Um, what's even more annoying than, than these intolerable freaks making gazillions of dollars by playing with slime? I, I, I don't know. Whatever. Just, just click and like the subscribe button if you're listening, please. That helps our numbers. That helps drive more ad revenue. If you like the show, please do that. Also, uh, we are on YouTube. I never talk about it, but our channel there is um, Super Bad Dad. I put up the interviews there. I never talk about it because half of them get taken down as soon as they go up. And also, I, I haven't figured out how to get the whole show there, just the interview portions. So, any guys, how you been? Um, had my son's ninth birthday party this weekend. It was really fun on the beach. Uh, I had no idea. I don't know if you guys knew that Throwing a beach party for a nine-year-old takes literally weeks of preparation. I had no idea. And zillions of dollars. And I'm sure you guys remember a couple weeks ago when I said my only goal from May until June is to get through it unscathed and unyelled at. Because we have, in those two months, we've got the bride's birthday, my birthday, Mother's Day, our kid's birthday, Father's Day, our anniversary, everything. Well, guess what? Didn't make it. I just got off eight, eight days of couch detail. Um, so let me just say, totally my fault. She might be listening, so shh. Um, what else is going on? Tomorrow is National Married Men's Blowjob and Ugly Tie Day. Yeah, baby. Line up and get your blowies, fellas. I can't wait. 
I got my wife a facial massage yesterday to get her all prepared. It's going to be lit, as the kids say. Um, I, yeah, <clears throat> I find it amazing how girlfriends just love, 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 love giving the blowies. You know, they love it. But then, like, sometime between the nuptials and the end of the honeymoon, suddenly they all develop TMJ. Like 90% of married, statistical fact, 90% of married women in America suffer from TMJ. Crazy. Now, I know the news loves to talk about conspiracy theories. They love it. They love to take things that have happened and, and make it out like to some wackadoodle conspiracy. But how come we never hear about the conspiracy that all married women have TMJ? Why? And, and and I know, I know, every 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 dude has that one buddy who will say, Meh, my wife's not like that. She loves giving blowjobs. <laughs> um, all right, bro. Hey, buddy, uh, go fuck yourself. You're, you're not one of us. You've not suffered. Okay? So just sh- shut it. And look, I don't want to do a whole show about oral. I don't, but it is. Tomorrow is Father's Day, so I'm just stating facts here. Myself and most men I know, we still love going downtown to Yaya Town as often as mama wants us to. Some of us, some of us don't even mind going down the road to, to Brownsville, you know? We, we don't stop wanting to pleasure our wives just because we got married. But hey, whatever. You know, you do you. Can't wait for tomorrow's beeger. Also, um, little tip. If you only do something like once a year, it, it doesn't really make it a super awesome special treat. I mean, if you do something once a year, you kind of lose your skills. Like if I'm a plumber and I only fix one toilet every year because I have TMJ that gets in the way of my job, well, I, you know, I would expect people would want another plumber who fixed toilets regularly to fix their toilet, not the guy who does it once a year and suffers from TMJ, you know? And uh, enjoy the ugly ties, gentlemen. You know, you're getting one. Ugly tie. I actually don't have a single tie. I've not worn one in my entire adult life other than my wedding. And nobody would ever give me one unless they were trying to be funny in some way. I, I, I kind of feel like my biggest life accomplishment may be that I built a business from scratch and sold it for a pretty nice penny without ever wear, wearing a tie a single time. Never even buttoned the top button on my, sh- my shirts. So what else? Um, my 11-year-old just got back from his first ever overnight camp. It was very exciting. Four nights on Catalina Island. I don't know if he went to the Catalina Island mixer, wine mixer or not. Um, and you know, it, it's so funny, kids. Before he left, I tried to give him some good fatherly advice. You know, I was like, son... Um, you know, be a leader. Don't do dumb shit to impress your friends. Um, don't do dumb shit just because they're doing dumb shit. Be a leader. And if older kids pick on you or your buddies, you dudes, you 11-year-olds, you stick together. You get each other's backs and you stick up for each other and fight back. As I'm, as I'm you know, emptying out this good, strong, fatherly advice, he, he turns back to me and he says, Dad... Why do you have giant eye bags under your eyes? <laughs> what? 
Well, son, uh, mommy's had me on the couch all week, so you're a dick. So yeah, that's that's how my week was. But good news is we are back in business. We made up. I apologized. I have a awesome anniversary gift that I'm going to give to her tonight. It's going to blow her mind and it'll buy me at least three weeks of her good graces. So uh, it's been about a week and a half since the last podcast. I do believe what's been going on. Uh, I, you know, just want to touch on a couple stories and then we'll get into the interview because Annie Murphy Paul is a smart lady with great advice. And I'm sure she's listening to this right now in, in anticipation of her interview. And she's like, oh man, what did I sign up for? This guy is not my people. Um, and, and I apologize, Annie. You were an amazing interview. And I'm glad to be able to share you with my Neanderthal audience. But what's been going on is Hillary Clinton whacked another dude. <laughs> I mean, I didn't mean that. I mean... ABC journalist Christopher Sign, the one who broke open the story about Bill's illegal tarmac meeting with Attorney General Loretta Lynch during the Hillary email investigation, he suicided himself. Exactly the 37th person in the Hillary and Bill uh, chain of command to suicide himself. It's, uh, it's amazing how many of them have suicided themselves. It's got to be above average. Also, this week, official documents are released showing that the number two and number three conspirators in the January 6th violent insurrection have been identified. They've been identified by the authorities, but not named nor charged. Anyone even remotely connected to the insurrection has been in solitary confinement without even a trial for six months now, but the planners of it have not been charged, not named. Hmm, wonder what that could be about. I mean, we now know that the attempted kidnapping plot of Governor Whitmer was planned by FBI agents who infiltrated a group of basement-dwelling degenerates. Uh, two out of the five of them in that car were FBI agents. And now we know that at least three different Muslim terrorist events that were stopped by the FBI were planned by the FBI, infiltrating borderline mentally handicapped Muslims and helping them plan attacks. So I can't possibly what's go imagine what's going on here. I don't know. So hey, look, you know, I spent a lot of time on this show in the past 15 months talking about the importance of freedom. But, but I want to apologize to my listeners and basically the whole world. I think I get a little too carried away. And I don't know why I dump on politicians so much. They really aren't that bad. For the record, I just want to say that I love the Clintons. Like a deep, in my soul kind of love. You, re you remember in the Catholic Church when a, when a priest would tell you that God is an awesome God and you should love and fear God because he's a vengeful God. That's how I love the Clintons. And government, dear daddy, I just want you to know that I love big government. Honestly, I love taxes. I think I should be taxed at 100% because government is so much smarter than me and so much better at managing money. I have a credit card. And it has a $4,000 balance on it. $4,000 I'm in debt. That's nothing to manage. You guys are managing a $30 trillion credit card debt. 
That takes way more brains to manage that. Honestly, I don't even know why you let me have money. I think you should consider just having us work in exchange for us working. You let us live in a house and once in a while you swing by with some food. I mean, I've had that government cheese and and it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I don't know, guys. I'm, I mean, I'm kind of just spitballing, but I, I genuinely feel this in my soul. And look, government, I'm glad you guys know every little detail about my life. I feel that I'm in good hands. I trust you. I, I know you'll probably make better decisions for my life and my children's life than I will. I'm terrible at decisions. You're so good at them. Look, I got a tramp stamp on my low back when I was 24 years old. What kind of moron gets a tramp stamp that's a depiction of his fiance, who he is now not married to? You don't have a tramp stamp, stamp, government. You stamp tramps. Millions of tramps all over the world. You're so awesome at killing tramps. I Honestly, I'm not like one one millionth as good at anything as you're good at killing and murder. You're the best. So you're very talented government and I'm glad you're in charge because now all the bad guys are dead. And sure, it's okay that sometimes a good guy gets gets killed. Once in a while, it's okay. Because honestly, they're probably just bad guys and I'm just not smart enough to know that they're the bad guys. Only you're smart enough. I mean, after all, you have all the information in the world. Maybe I'm a bad guy. I don't know. You probably know better than me. Maybe I'm the bad guy. And I'm glad Facebook and Instagram and Twitter don't let me run my mouth and, and ban me every now and then when I say something silly. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad that Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg, these billionaires, are able to decide what I can say. Because they know more things than me. They're billionaires. Of course they should know and be able to decide what I can say. I'm not even sure how I made it through 48 years of life without Zuckerberg babysitting me. Honestly, I, I wish they had more control over my life. They, sh- they should probably create an app that tells me when to go play with my children, when to shower, when to make love to my wife. Then maybe I wouldn't have spent a week on the couch. If I had Zuckerberg letting me know how to run my household, I would not have been on the couch for a week. I need direction and I'm grateful to Zuckerberg. And and look, look, I love that my kids didn't go to school for a whole year. I love it. We had so much quality bonding time and that's the truth. It was amazing and Zoom school, it, it was fantastic. It was the best. Two hours a day staring at a computer, uh, getting taught the Pledge of Allegiance and why they're bad kids. I mean, they didn't even have to take their pajamas off for an entire year. What's not to love about that? And of course, I want my kids jabbed with all the needles. Give them all of the vaccines, not just COVID. Give them the the bubonic plague vaccine and the Spanish flu vaccine and rubella and yellow fever and typhoid fever. Give them all of it. I mean, turn my kids into a pincushion, please, dear daddy. I want you to stick them every other week until they hit puberty. It'll toughen them up, honestly. And, and... You know, if my kid says something at recess to one of his friends, like, I like playing with my stuffed animals, which my kids have stuffed animals, they like them. What you should do is assume that my son is actually a girl and jam him up with puberty blockers like a couple of his classmates. 
please do it because puberty is dumb. I got picked on big time during puberty. I got my head shoved in a toilet with a turd and flushed during puberty. Please fill them up with puberty blockers. Please do it. And look, daddy, dear daddy, dear daddy, I love that you listen to me through my phone and through my computer camera. You know, you're probably looking at me right now. I'm shirtless. What do you think about that? How do I look, dear daddy? It makes me feel safe and comforted and not lonely to know that you're looking at me all the time and listening all the time. Hey guys, I'm waving. You see me? You're my best friends. And you know, I, I, we've been resisting vaccine passports here, not because we're anti-vaxxers. We're not. I get the vaccines, but I've been resisting the idea because I don't think government should have the ability to have some kind of digital record of us where they know all of our medical information and can start making new rules like, you know, uh, you can't buy alcohol because you have high blood pressure. But I've changed my mind on all that, you know, and, and privacy. HIPAA laws are stupid. Privacy is dumb. You know, if I go to the grocery store and I try to buy chocolate covered pretzels, but I've already had a lot of sugar that week and you can see that on my ID, my digital passport, you should probably watch out for me and prevent me from buying those chocolate covered pretzels. I mean, I eat too much chocolate covered pretzels and I don't want to get fat. I don't want to get fat. I don't want heart disease. And I, I don't know how to control what I eat. I ate a whole pizza last night. I need your help. And, you know, eating is not, we're not supposed to eat for pleasure. We're supposed to eat so we can stay alive longer, so we can work more, so we can pay more taxes, so we can fund the government. And I need you to help me do that. And look, look, I know Jeffrey Epstein killed himself 100%. And I know there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, 100%. I'm sure you probably actually found them and you just didn't want to tell us about them. I get it. I have secrets too. We all have secrets. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I don't have secrets from you, dear daddy. But you know, there's things I don't tell my wife sometimes. Not true, honey. And now, thank God, I won't be faced with that dilemma anymore because nobody will have secrets from anyone and we shouldn't have secrets. We should be one hive mind. And of course, I think all white people are racist and all men are sexist. I married a Filipino woman as a cover. I'm obviously racist. Obviously. And honestly, I'm just... I'm just grateful that you let me keep living. And no, I don't think anyone should have to show ID to vote or to get into this country. And of course, we should have to show ID to get our mandatory vaccine and our mandatory passport. I get it. Some people don't get it, but that's because they don't see you in the same light I see you. I know you want what's best for me. I know you didn't kill Kennedy. That's silly. I know you didn't torture people in Guantanamo Bay. I know you didn't hold them there illegally. Those cab drivers you arrested, they were bad, dangerous people. They they probably had the weapons of mass destruction in their glove compartment box. That's what I think. 
And I know that on 9-11, you had to get all the Saudi Arabians out of here, even though the rest of the nation's travel was shut down. I get it. I know you had to lie about the Gulf of Tonkin to get us to go to war with Vietnam, because if you didn't do that, people wouldn't have supported the war. And it was an important war because those Vietnamese and those Koreans, dangerous people, very dangerous people. And no, that's not racist because that's your decision and you know what's best. And look, look, yes, we all know that the Bush family made their wealth by doing business with the the Nazis after World War II had started and, and that we had the Trading with the Enemies Act created because of Prescott Bush and this fact. But I get it. The Bushes needed the money so they could build an empire and eventually catch those weapons of mass destruction and save all of humanity. They saw it coming. I mean, really, they were just like magical fortune tellers. And we are so, so grateful. George Bush, Prescott Bush, George Bush Jr. And I know the Harvard acid mind control studies were necessary. And just because one of the subjects became the Unabomber, well... That's a small price to pay for for the payoff of uh, the enjoyment of torturing people with acid, I guess. I get it. We all get it. We're not trying to be difficult. And look, I understand that you had to take the dollar off the gold standard so that you could inf- inflate the currency by printing massive, massive amounts of it and handing it out to the bankers because how else are the banks supposed to stay rich if you don't print money and give it to them? And if the bankers aren't rich and other people end up having as much money as some of the elite, well, that would be terrible because as we've already talked about, most of us can't handle money. I mean, just look at what happens when one of us wins the lottery. We go bankrupt almost every time. You win the lottery, bankrupt. I'm surprised that you let us win money like that, but I'm not going to question you. That's not my place. And, you know, creating the IRS in 1914, friggin' brilliant. Before the IRS, we had freedom with our money. I mean, yes, we, we separated from England so that we could have freedom with our money and not be taxed. And I mean... Statistics show that 98% of disposable income at that time went to prostitution and drugs. So obviously you had to tax us so we'd stop buying hookers and blow. You freed us from hookers and blow. There's no hookers and blow anymore. So thank you. And yes, I totally support the war on drugs. 100% drugs are naughty. If someone takes a drug Drone bomb them. Drone bomb right on their face if you see somebody taking a drug. And I'll tell you what. Complete seriousness. I am looking forward to the war on thinking. Has it it started yet? I mean, I'm not sure because I try my best not to think. (sighs) Anyway. Anyway, government, dear daddy, I'm, I'm I'm getting all of the vaccines. All, all three of them, all four of them, even the, the one they don't give you anymore, I'm going to find it. So thank you. And I'm, I'm sorry for being difficult. Okay, freedom lovers, travelers, 
libertarians, crypto lovers. This podcast is brought to you by the Expat Money Show, hosted by Mikhail Thorpe. Uh, as I've mentioned before, we've had Mikhail on the show. He's awesome. He drops a new episode every Wednesday. This week, he did an episode about the blockchain and the future of the internet. I listened. It was an amazing episode. Uh, you guys remember previously on the show, we had on Anton Antonopoulos. Uh, I'm sorry, Andres Antonopoulos, who uh, talked to us for an hour about Bitcoin. It's the future, guys. So check out this episode this week. Um, also, as I've hinted at in the past couple shows, we, after having Mikkel on our show, we contracted his services, which you can also do. Very reasonable price. He consults with, with couples and families who are looking at expatriating, which we are doing. And I've not given the details yet, but, but you know what? I'll just go ahead and give him. He's helping us get out of Dodge and possibly relocate to Panama. Um, and so far, it's been an amazing experience. We're going to Panama on July 10th for two weeks to explore it further. He set us up with lawyers, accountants. Um, he knows all the ins and outs of visas, just everything. Because honestly, I've been thinking about doing this for a long time. And had we tried to navigate this on our own, it would have been a disaster. Um, check out Ms. Mikkel's show. Check out his website, theexpatmoneyshow.com. Just great information, super entertaining. He is a freedom lover. Um, his guests are amazing. Please check it out. And thank you for listening. Okay, guys, here we go. Today we are here with science writer and the author of The Extended Mind, Annie Murphy-Paul. Annie, how are you doing today? Hi, I'm good. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we just discussed it, but Annie was kind enough to to change the time of this meeting because you guys know my life is chaos. The wife got called into work, so I'm running kids around and everything. So thank you very much for that. Um, I want to start with just a little bit about you. So you're you're a science writer, and and other than writing about science, what does that actually mean? <laughs> Well, I write about a particular branch of science, which is psychology and cognitive science. So I'm really not interest, that interested in science apart from what it can tell us about people, because I mean, you just can't get me that interested in like geology or astronomy, you know, like I think okay. people are the most interesting thing. So I've written about, I've been a, a freelance journalist and book author for about 25 years. And that whole time I've been writing about psychology and research on psychology. So looking at what science can tell us about human behavior. Okay, great. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's interesting. What, what got you interested in that? Well, let's see, I started out as a reader and I think lots of readers have a dream of becoming writers. You know, sure. they like, they love to read. And so they want to do what they, uh, what they want to do for others, what they have so much enjoyed as a reader. So that was probably the origins of it. But, um, you know, I, my first job was actually my, uh, was reporting and writing for my university's alumni magazine. And in okay, that cool. capacity, I got to interview and write about all these professors and scientists and researchers that, um, you know, maybe I hadn't even had as, as, as a student there. And I got to find out about what they were researching, what questions they were pursuing. And I just discovered that was like, a really cool way to um, jump into someone else's life work, you know, and like, mm -hmm. and learn about what questions and 
um, problems really drove them. And I, I, more than being a scientist, which involves a lot of tedious, like construction of experiments and stuff, I like to go right to the findings and like, you know, okay, what did you, <laughs> right. what did you find right. out? That's the good stuff. So yeah, right. I get to skim off, you know, the best parts of the journal articles rather than having to do the grunt work myself. Okay. Very good. Yeah. You, you just want the answers. You don't want to do the work. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> kidding, exactly. Kidding. Um, okay. So, so your book, um, the idea of the extended mind, it's kind of like, um, the, uh, what I gathered from it. Okay. I didn't read it all. I read about half of it and I, I do love it. And I'm going to encourage the readers to get it. It's, it's really fascinating. And I think it applies to parenting, but the idea is that we think with our bodies and the physical spaces around us and minds of other people we know now, now when I say that out loud and it, it sounds kind of a little bit woo woo. <laughs> You know what yes, I mean? Like we yes, think with other people's minds, uh -huh, um, right. but there, but there's hard science behind it. Mm -hmm. So before we get into the details of, of what all this means and how you do it and how you can improve your thinking in these methods um, and help your children, what, give me like a thousand foot view of, of what this all means. Yes. So this is an idea. I don't want to take credit for it again. I didn't do the hard work. <laughs> this is somebody else's idea. It emerged out of philosophy. Um, these two philosophers came up with this idea and they, by posing this question, they said, where does the mind stop and the rest of the world begin? Mm -hmm. And there's a really obvious and, and conventional answer to that, right? Which is it stops at the skull. It stops at the sure. limits of our head. Makes and sense that's, yeah, right. That's that's what we all think. But they they dared to say, well, no, actually, and their their example, this was in 1998 that this article came out. So it's before smartphones and all that. They their example was a notebook. They said, if you have a notebook and you consult with that notebook, you write in it, you make lists, you remind yourself, you have reminders for yourself in that notebook. That, that notebook becomes a part of your thinking process. You could even say it becomes a part of your mind. And, you know, even among philosophers who love to entertain crazy out there ideas, this was pretty considered pretty wacky. You know, this mm -hmm. article that they wrote, um, Andy Clark and David Chalmers are the two philosophers. This article they wrote was rejected from three journals before it finally found a home. And, you know, lots of people reacted to it with, if they heard about it at all, they reacted to it with like, oh, that's, that's pretty, you know, um, sure. that's, that's pretty far out. Well, yeah, that's, then... that's, that's my first instinct, but, <laughs> yeah. but there's actual, there's been like experiments on this and yeah. Sure. Well, I was going to say then something else happened, which is the smartphone was invented. You know, the Apple introduced the first iPhone in 2007. So people have said about this idea of the extended mind that it was false when it was written, but it later became true because we all do. I think it's pretty intuitive to, to people to think about how we we do offload some of our oh, absolutely. memory, you know, our ment some of our mental functions some, onto our like phones. 90%. <laughs> maybe, maybe a whole lot. Yeah, yeah, onto our phones. So that's the usually the easiest way into the idea of the extended mind is to think about how your smartphone or your computer is a kind of extension of your mind that if you didn't have it, you really wouldn't be able to think as well as you do or in the same way that you do. So that's... Um, that's the easiest way to understand the, the extended mind. I expand on that idea and talk about how, say, our gut feelings or our movements yeah. and the gestures of our hands, those things are part of our thinking process. It doesn't all happen up here. Mm -hmm. um, and then, as, as you mentioned, the other two mental extensions I really explore in the book are the physical spaces in which we learn and work 
and our interactions, our social interactions with other people, those all become part of our thinking process. Yeah. And I want to, I want to talk about all that. And, and you mentioned, uh, you mentioned thinking with your gut there. So let's, since you mentioned that, let's talk about that in the book. You give an example of wall street traders who are like super high IQ individuals doing like complex analytics mm-hmm. and whatnot. And mm-hmm. I'm into analytics, especially in sports. Mm-hmm. I, I think analytics are extremely useful and, mm-hmm. and tell a story. And you, you state how they were getting blown away by guys who are just going with their gut. Right, when, I, right. when I hear going with my gut, to me, that kind of indicates someone who just hasn't put in the work to research. <laughs> it just like means just yeah. a whatever kind of person. What does it mm-hmm. mean? To you? Mm-hmm. What does that going with your gut mean to you? Yeah. And I think a lot of people, especially in finance, would make that same assumption that it's really a very cerebral kind of intellectual undertaking. But there is evidence that, and I don't want to make this sound really woo-woo and new agey because it's not. When you when you feel a, a, a gut feeling, a prompt from within that, you know, scientists call it introception. That's the capacity for sensing internal signals. What that really is, is your body alerting you to patterns of experience, to regularities in your experience that you are too complex to be held in the conscious mind. So mm-hmm. you're not, it's stored in your non-conscious, in your non-conscious mind, yep. but it's your, the way you're alerted to a pattern that you've encountered before is a bodily signal that's sort of like a tug at your sleeve or a nudge saying, Hey, you've, you've encountered this situation before, and this is what you did before that worked out great. Or this is what you shouldn't do because it didn't work out so great before. And people who can tune into those internal signals, they can use that information to make better choices, better decisions. And that's what's going on with the financial traders. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, you literally feel it with your body, your body reacts. So you mentioned, um, Interoception. I want to. I want to get into that in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm. I'm a physical therapist. Uh, by mm. I, I used to be. Um, mm. So that that word caught my ear. But before that, I don't want to get off the Wall Street traders. Mm-hmm. Um, you also talk about them as uh, people, Wall Street traders, who could accurately describe or tell someone when their heart was beating were very right. highly correlated with success, meaning they were able right. to feel their heart beating. Um, yes. They were more in tune with their own bodies and I guess able to listen to their body's own signals. So after I read this, I sat and concentrated for 15 minutes trying to feel my heartbeat and I couldn't <laughs> do it. Um, yeah. Coming from a health background, I, I've been under the impression that if you're feeling your heart beating, some, something's wrong. So mm, mm. How, mm-hmm. how can you actually learn this skill, it seems like. Yeah. Yeah. There, that is an individual difference. Pe- some people can readily know when their heart is beating and other people don't, but it, it also is a capacity that can be cultivated. And the way to cut one way to cultivate it is through a meditative exercise known as the body scan, which if, if your listeners have done med- uh, meditation, often that's what starts off a meditation session is that you start by going into your body and feeling uh, feeling the sensations that are rising up in a, in a kind of open-minded, non-judgmental way. And by doing that, you can cultivate this ability to tune into your body's signals. And it, it doesn't, it doesn't all depend on hearing your heartbeat. I should say that this, this test of interoceptive sensitivity, it uses the heart as a kind of proc, the heartbeat as a kind of proxy for all these other internal signals, but we can all become, more sensitive and more attuned to those internal signals, which I just want to add, since this is, you know, a a podcast focused on parenting that, um, 
this is something we really want to encourage in our kids. You know, so often we tell our sure. kids like, you know, keep eating, like you, I, you're, you can't be full yet, you know, or we, we kind of tell them like, you're tired, go to bed. You know, it, it's basically, we, we kind of tell yeah, them to that, ignore that their in, own body signals. That interprets as mom and dad are tired, go to bed. That's not, <laughs> right. That's Which fair means. enough, you know, yeah. fair enough. But I do, but the evidence suggests that those differences in interoceptive sensitivity, a lot of that has to do with the messages we got from our caretakers growing up, our caregivers, mm -hmm. okay. about whether it was okay to listen to your body, to pay attention to it. So that's something mm. I try to keep in mind as a, as a mom. So if you're, if you're, silencing those signals for your children, um, they will kind of, those skills will kind of go away much like parents who don't encourage creativity. The kids kind of lose the creativity. Is that what you mean? Right. Right. And right. we want to let kids know, just give them the message that it's okay to pay attention to what's happening in your body. And that in particular doing academic work or intellectual work, that doesn't mean that you have to push your body aside. You can actually draw on the wisdom of the body when you're doing your thing. Yeah. I want to get into, I want to get into children and learning. Cause I have one hyperactive kid who's a lot like me, hyperactive and he, he's very smart. He learns well, but he has a hard time sitting still and listening. Let's get into that. But first let's not let go of interoception. So mm -hmm. in physical therapy school, we learn about proprioception, which mm -hmm. is the, the awareness of your body in space, meaning like your, your elbows bent to what degree it's the awareness of body in space. How is, how right. is interoception different from proprioception. Right, right. I, I love that we're talking about these two things because we actually have all these senses, you know, we're used to thinking of the five senses, but we have these other sort of bodily resources that we don't think about as much. And, you know, many of your listeners might not have heard of proprioception or interoception, but the difference is that proprioception is more about your sense of, as you were saying, where your body is in space and interoception mm -hmm is about all these internal sensations that arise from all over the body actually. And then they all go up to this hub in the brain called the insula where um, Got it. Those internal sensations are integrated with a sense of, you know, how do I feel in this moment? It's like a continuous gauge of how you're doing. Okay. So, so proprioception is something like my, my hand is uh, four feet away from my heart reaching mm -hmm. for that pretzel and uh, <laughs> interoception might be like, um, I, my heart desires the pretzel <laughs> or um, like my stomach is grumbling because okay. I'm really hungry and I want that pretzel. <laughs> okay. All right. I get yeah. it. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. I get it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So yeah. Onto the kids. Uh, you talked mm -hmm. about a school in San Rafael, California that mm -hmm. threw out all the desks and the kids stand or walk or sit or whatever. Yeah. And I remember once being on a hike in Malibu with my family and we came across a school of kids in the middle of the day on a weekday. It was a charter mm -hmm. school and they were mm -hmm. on a hike. And mm. they, they, um, the school said that this is what they do every day. They go hiking and they wow. this way, which sounded awesome, but also really weird. I come from a family <laughs> of teachers, my mom, my dad, my sister, and that just sounds mm. like chaos, not having desks. <laughs> um, huh. has, has this method been successful and, um, is it catching on at all? Yeah. You know, it's still not, it's still certainly not the norm. This is called something it, it this is called, um, an activity permissive classroom. And, um, even that name sounds a little apologetic to me. Like we, we permit activity here, but that even that shows you how radical it is in a way to think that you could be moving while you're learning, which is what the, these kids that you saw were, mm -hmm. were clearly doing. 
what was happening in the classroom that I wrote about was something a little different. It was, they were mostly small movements. You know, they, they, they did have desks, they had standing desks um, available to them and, but they were, and so they were able to move their body in small ways, or they might bounce on a, a an activity ball, or they might sit on the floor. The whole, the idea was that children should be able to move their bodies the way they want to, and not be forced to sit still as they learn as is the usual model, because it actually takes a fair amount of cognitive, it uses up a fair amount of cognitive resources to inhibit the mm -hmm. the desire to move because we're naturally kind of, especially children are, we're creatures who want to move. So to control that right. impulse and inhibit it, especially for hours at a time, uses up mental resources that we could be applying to academic work. Got it. Got it. Um. Okay. So that, that makes me think, Um. you know, when children are, are struggling in school, very often we just, we parents will tell them to sit down and study harder. Sounds like maybe not the best advice, but also uh, personally for my own kid, uh, like I said, he's, he's a very smart kid. He does very well in school, but he is a fidgeter to the nth degree as I was when I was young. Mm -hmm. And we have anxiety that runs through our family. I don't really have it, but it runs through the family where there's fidgety behaviors associated with the anxiety. And yeah. I've noticed him doing these behaviors where I've seen with other family members that has led to anxiety. So I try to discourage him mm. from those behaviors and movements. Mm. Mm. Are you saying that's discouraging that kind of fidgetiness is the wrong thing? Well, I would suggest maybe looking at it a different way, which is that he may be coping with his anxiety or managing his anxiety through that, through those movements. Well, he and, is. Yes. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So discouraging, so discouraging that or preventing him from do that, doing that might be discouraging a coping mechanism that but, works for him. Right. But we're trying to teach other coping mechanisms. I'm wondering, mm -hmm. like, is, is this impairing his, like when we're talking about thinking with the body, thinking mm -hmm. with uh, gestures, is that, mm -hmm. is that something that would impede that? I think so because yeah. um, you know I'm, I'm I don't know if your son has a diagnosis of ADHD, but students who do who do have that diagnosis, and even those and even those who don't, we all use movement to sort of calibrate our level of arousal, be, of physiological arousal, because there's a kind of ideal level of arousal we want to be at. We don't want to be so relaxed that we're like catatonic, and we don't want right. to be so keyed up that we can't concentrate. So fidgeting is like this very fine-tuned way of adjusting our level of arousal, kind of like um, a an adult might drink a cup of coffee to, to, before they tackle a big assignment. A kid mm -hmm. might move around to get ju in just the right frame of mind um, to tackle a school assignment. And so right. while parents and teachers often think, okay, I need you to sit down and be still so you can concentrate, it's actually like no, I, you need to move around so you can concentrate. Many, mm -hmm. many kids are like that. Yeah. Uh, that gives me a different way to look at it. And even as I'm sitting here talking to you right now, I'm like tapping my fingers on my leg. <laughs> I've always mm -hmm, been a mm -hmm. fidgeter. So mm -hmm. yeah, we mostly, we mostly discourage it when we're just sitting around relaxing, like we want them to relax, but you're giving me mm -hmm. something mm -hmm. to think about. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, just more on the personal level. Um, so I've written a novel. I, I'm a writer like you and a memoir and I've created, and I'm not trying to, to brag here, but I want to put this in context. Mm -hmm. I've created a business. I've sold a business. I've started this podcast, which is growing. And in every one of those cases, as I reflect back, I got the idea while either jogging or walking. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you tell a story about an x-ray doc- doctor who he set up mm-hmm. a, a workstation with a treadmill to examine his x-rays while running and he fostered much better results. Yeah. What, what are some ways people can incorporate movement into, say, their, their work setting? Is yeah. that a realistic thing? I think so. I, Cause there's a bunch of different ways you can do it. One is, is that walking workstation that the, that the radiologist used that I described, you know, so you're actually walking at a relatively slow pace while you're working on your computer and it takes a little getting used to, but people do do this. Right. Another but, way but is to take a break and to move and then return to your work. Okay. Take, yeah. take a break and move and return. Yeah. Cause I don't see a lot of bosses hiring, ordering a bunch of treadmills for their <laughs> workers. You know what I mean? So yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Historically, I also read that hunter uh, human, you know, humans are hunter gatherers, and I've been interested in that culture since I read uh, Sex at Dawn by um, Hmm. Christopher. Something doesn't matter, but um, your book states that in hunter gatherer cultures today in Africa, the average hunter gatherer does like 135 minutes of exercise a day, and Mm -hmm. which is more than the average American does in a week. And I know that's making us fat, but (laughs) is it also possibly dumbing us down as we're learning like IQs escalated for yes. centuries and now they've flattened and they're kind of going down. Is it would this yes. have something to do with it? Yes. Um I do think that we are way too sedentary in our both in our schools and in our workplaces. And as you say, it's really unhealthy for our bodies, but it's also not ideal for our brains because physical activity and cognitive acuity, you know, um, Mm. the ability to think intelligently, those things are really very intimately linked, you know, in our evolution and in our current biology. And so, you know, one thing we tend to do when we do take breaks from work um, is we kind of stay at our computers or our devices and we just shift what we're doing on the devices. Like we might look at the news or at Twitter or instead yep. of, you know, doing, doing our work. And then we go back to our work Yes, just as frazzled or maybe more than before we had our break. Whereas because we, we read bad news. Well, that too, yeah. that too. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and, but if we took our, if we took a movement break instead yeah. of a coffee break and actually we'd actually return to our desks more focused and more able to pay attention, which, you know, I think is, is a more feasible thing for people to work into their, into their days. Yeah. Like maybe, uh, offices, like offices working for better productivity, which is all of them. Maybe Mm -hmm. they should have like, you know, five minute breaks where everybody gets up and stretches together. Yeah. You know, something. Yeah. I, I think it's, that's actually been a surprising upside of the pandemic when so many of us have been working at home is that we actually have more freedom to, um, to take a break like that. And everybody I know is doing more walking like in their neighborhood and stuff like that. And it's also a good thing to get outside and to be in nature because the kind of sensory information that we encounter in nature really restores our attentional capacities in a way that just sitting and looking at your screen is, is, is not going to do. Okay. Yeah. Nature. Let's, let's talk about that. Cause I, I found that yeah. also kind of strange talking about how, um, well, I, I know that personally, I, I do some of my best thinking, like when we're camping, but I've always associated that with the fact that I'm away from all of my stressors, right? I can, mm-hmm, I can mm-hmm. relax and thoughts can come mm-hmm. through me. I never yeah. gave a thought to the fact that it might have something to do with what's around me. Like, can you explain what using your surroundings for thinking means? Yeah. Yeah. So again, you know, going back to what you were saying about how we really are still biologically speaking hunter gatherers, you know, we evolved living outside this world where we live 
in buildings and spend a lot of time in cars. That's really recent, really mm-hmm. recent, you know, in evolutionary terms. So our senses are tuned to the kind of information that's found in nature, you know, this kind of, um, there's not a lot of sharp edges. There's a lot of gentle diffuse movement. There's, um, you know, muted kinds of sounds like bird song and those, that kind of stimulation is very relaxing to the brain. It's very restorative to the brain. Whereas being in urban environments or really sharp edged kind of built environments, like the ones that we occupy most of the time, those are more draining. And so we really need to refill the tank in a sense. Um, of our attention. We spend so much time thinking about how to direct our attention and how to control our attention, but we don't think about how to restore our attention when it's depleted. Okay. So, so kind of in my, in my thinking, I was kind of on the right track. I'm not, Mm -hmm. you're not exactly using, you're not using the trees to think better. It's, it's your surroundings are helping your brain to, to detach and, and relax and think better. Yes, to okay. recover really to from recover. from all the stress that we put on it in our work lives. All right. Um, so back to children, uh, you've uh, employed some things that you've learned from studying this with your own kids. Like what have you done and yeah. what results have you seen? Yeah. Well, going back to thinking with the body, you know, we there's um, a chapter in the book about how we think with gestures. And that has really affected my parenting in the sense that I now understand that we often think of, of, you know, it's the words that lead the way and our, maybe our, we're just kind of hand-waving as we gesture and maybe gestures actually are just there to, to lag behind speech or to emphasize speech or something. But actually, it's often the case that our most advanced and our, our most cutting-edge ideas show up first in our gesture before we can really, we're really able to put words to those ideas. And then when we see ourselves, you know, gesturing with our hands, that gives, that kind of informs our verbal account of what we're, of this, this idea that we're struggling to grasp. So now when my kids are trying to understand something or explain something, I'll say, well, you know, move your hands when you say that. And I'll pay attention to their hands and see if there's an idea that they're just about to be able to express, but can't quite do it in words yet. That's interesting. So I come from a Italian family where, every, <laughs> I mean, the stereotype is true. Everybody talks with big, big gestures and yeah. that, you know, some people in the family discourage that. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so you're encouraging that you're encouraging that. Absolutely. As- yes. Okay. I think it's really too bad that our culture in general thinks of gesturing as kind of gauche, you know, or uncouth mm-hmm. or something. It really is. It actually, gesturing actually helps us to speak more fluently. So we should be gesturing, you know, more. <laughs> okay. All right, good. I'm going to, I'm going to use that next time someone mentions that to me. <laughs> um, I found the story of the, the Vegas gamblers super fascinating so if i Mm. I could just briefly summarize correct me if i'm Mm -hmm. I'm mistaken but Mm -hmm. they brought in uh gamblers and there was four decks of cards and two of the car two of the decks were loaded with bad cards and they they would turn over the cards and based on what they turn over they would win or lose money so decks a and b had bad cards and after like 10 card pools their hands would sweat when they would touch deck A or B or think about touching deck A or B as if their body already knew something bad was coming, whereas it took them about 50 card pulls before their brain figured out that A and B were bad. And I guess the lesson is, is that your body knows before your brain sometimes. And if you can listen to your body, um, you might be ahead of the game. 
Exactly. That- yeah. No, your body is responding before you're consciously aware of what your body is already reacting to. And so, and that's why people who are more attuned to and more sensitive to those internal signals, they get a sort of a, an earlier heads up about that kind of important information. Right. It was like their, their fingertips were sweating minorly, right? That's, that's right. That's right. Cool. It's called, it's a measure of how aroused your, your um, nervous system is. They call it skin conductance. Yes. So what, what are real world applications of like being able to notice changes like this in your body? Well, one of the most interesting aspects of that to me is that it actually allows you to relate to other people better um, because the way that we understand what other people are feeling, obviously we don't have any direct channel for understanding how another person is thinking or feeling. The way we figure that out as human beings is we very subtly mimic, imitate their their facial expressions. You know, if someone, say your kid has fallen down and, and scraped their knee, you might kind of, you know, you see them in pain and you kind of, you know, naturally react and you make that face yourself. Mm-hmm. And then you, re, you read off, your brain reads off your own body, how that makes you feel. And then you have a sense of how they're feeling. So it's really mm-hmm. the basis of empathy. And the more attuned you are to those internal signals, the more empathetic you are because you're you're grasping more acutely what the other person is feeling. Okay. Also along those lines, maybe the expression smiling is contagious. Like when someone smiles mm-hmm. at you, you feel mm-hmm. better and you smile back. Like it right, right, right. There's all these ways that humans have of bridging this gap between us as as individuals. And that's that's one of them. It's kind of our bodies communicating almost below the surface. Okay. Um, and you talk about... Um, feelings um and we're, we're talking about how a person feels here and you talk about feelings and sometimes just recognizing what you feel and putting a label on it like stating right. it is a, a clinically measurable way to decrease the feeling if it's a bad feeling and just that that statement of um you know i f- i feel terrible because that sounds like what therapy is like a lot of time you go to therapy um you're stating your feelings and it's not so much you're getting better because of the advice you're getting back. It's just that you're talking about it. Is yeah. That, right? Yeah. Yes. One interesting aspect of that research though, is that just labeling it and, and really focusing on the, the physical sensations again, like you might say, my, my stomach has butterflies and my chest feels really tight. And, um, you know, and my head is pounding, you know, focus, just labeling those things, physical feelings, actual sensations. Yeah. Sad. Okay. And that getting actually getting more deeply into, and it's because this happened and that happened, that actually makes you feel worse. That's actually, that actually increases anxiety. It's, it's just labeling and being very aware of what you're feeling physically that reduces anxiety. Got it. So, so I have a headache or I, so talking about like, whining, like telling everybody how you feel. My head hurts, my my back hurts, that sort of thing. Well, sharing your feelings with other people is a whole other thing that I think can help, but that's that's another section of the book, right? Thinking with so, other people. So sometimes just stating it aloud to, your, aloud to yourself. Yeah, literally labeling it for yourself. Yeah, Right. Like I have, I have a, a fused neck. I got a giant piece of metal in my neck, right? Mm. I try my best not to talk. It's chronic pain. I try my best mm-hmm. not to talk about it because I find people mm-hmm. don't want to hear about it. It's a mm-hmm. bummer to everybody, right? Mm-hmm. So, so you're suggesting maybe just like acknowledge to myself or maybe write it down. Today, my neck was a four out of 10 pain or whatever, like something like that. 
Well, certainly journaling, especially about negative feelings and negative experiences has, there's real scientific evidence to suggest that that helps. Even if you don't share it with someone else, even if it's just for you, writing down your feelings changes how you feel about it. It's, it's really a very useful tool. um, Journaling. I agree. I agree completely. I mean, as a writer, like when, when I get something out, if I'm, if I'm writing a novel or if I'm just like writing about my day, like it's a cleansing feeling. You get it out and you, f- you feel better, whatever. You Absolutely. Feeling, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I recommend that everybody, everybody should write, you know, everybody mm-hmm. should keep mm-hmm. a journal. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So we've all heard the expression, use it or lose it. Like that was one of my grandmother's favorite. And, and, <laughs> and we've learned that, you know, that's the idea kind of like your brain is like a muscle that can be exercised and strengthened. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so like our brain has physical components that, that can be improved by using them over and over. But then mm-hmm. on the other hand, we're also taught that um, we all have some kind of inherent intelligence that we're mm-hmm. gifted with or born with or our IQ. The two statements seem to be in conflict with each other. One, one puts the onus on you to do the work and get smarter. The other lets you off the hook. Mm-hmm. Are either of them mm-hmm. accurate? I would say toss out both of those ideas and replace them with a third idea, (laughs) which which is is that uh, the brain is less like a muscle, um, which actually has some things, as you say, there's some differences, but has some things in common with the idea of the, of intelligence as some internal thing. They, they both the muscle metaphor and this idea that it's this lump of stuff that you're born with or not, they both locate thinking inside the brain, you know, and what I'm saying is that so much of our thinking and so what, so much of what makes us smart is dependent on these external influences that we, these external resources that we're drawing on, like the body, like spaces, like other people. So if we can think of the brain less like a workhorse, you know, that we're just pushing and pushing and pushing, which is what we're really encouraged to do in our society. And more like an orchestra conductor that's kind of like, you know, drawing from here and drawing from there and sort of um, orchestrating it all. That is a much better role for the brain to play. So, okay. So you're saying um, get smarter by learning to think better, essentially. Become more skilled at using external resources to help the biological brain out because the biological brain itself is pretty, the biological brain itself is pretty limited. You know, we hear all the time about how amazing the brain is. It's so extraordinary. It's the most complex structure in the universe, all this stuff. And then like, but we also know that our brain lets us down all the time. We don't remember things. We can't pay attention. And it's like, wait, what? Like, I thought Mm -hmm. it was this amazing thing. Well, the thing, the amazing thing it can do is bring in the, these external resources to help it out because it is a limited biological evolved organ that really evolved to do things very different from what we ask it to do these days. Yes. Okay. I, I got that. Yeah. And th- my brain lets me down every day. <laughs> I have, I have a famously terrible memory. I think I didn't know my wife's name till our third date. No. That's not a joke. <laughs> um, it's famously bad. And I tried, I, I tried uh, luminosity to improve my, my memory mm-hmm. and I'm a mm-hmm. smart guy. I, I, I think I'm a smart guy, but my, my memory is terrible. And, and I found mm. from luminosity that I got really good at luminosity games. Exactly. But I didn't right. feel like my memory improved. And, and one thing that drives me nuts is I can't re- remember a name 
of a movie to save my life or names mm, of friends mm. or anything. Mm. But then I'll go out for a jog and I'm not thinking about it and it will come to me. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that is. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. What are some ways to use my environment or other people or uh, my body to remember things better? Yes. Well, one thing we can do is tie is deliberately tie our memory to movement and to um, moving our bodies through space. I think that's what's partly going on when you find that you, your memory is is literally jogged when you're you know you're out for a run. And uh, I, in the book, I talk about research on actors. You know, actors have this incredible ability to remember lines and lines and lines of dialogue. And the way that they do it is that they associate each line that they speak on stage with the movements that they're making at that time. They, the mm. two of them work together. They never try to learn their lines without knowing how they're moving about on stage. So if we can pair um, something that we need to remember with a gesture, for example, like if you're learning a foreign language and you have to learn a whole bunch of vocabulary words, if you can pair each new word with a gesture, you'll remember that word a whole lot better because we remember things that we do a lot mm-hmm. better than things that we hear or we read, you know, it's in one ear out the other as, as our grandmothers also probably okay. said. Okay. So yeah, that makes sense about actors. So they, they're associating certain movements with their lines. So, so do the same. That makes a lot of sense. So we're kind of short on time. I, I told mm-hmm. you I got a heart out. I got to go pick up the kid at basketball camp. Yes. Um, but I wanted to touch on uh, one thing. Um, I had a lot more questions, but I want to make sure I get this one in. I listened to your TED talk. It was awesome. Very fascinating. Mm, and you talked you. about how um, capable fetuses are of, of learning in the womb. And I think I always kind of knew that. Um, uh, you mentioned how they will learn the sound of their mother's voices, the, the theme mm-hmm. song of shows that a mom will watch regularly right, and right. even taste tastes of foods. So mm-hmm. given this knowledge, what can pregnant moms out there do to the advantage of their child? Mm. You know, I think the first thing is not to freak out, not to feel like everything you do will affect your your fetus and your baby, because that's the the message that I think a lot of people take away from this area of research, which is known as fetal origins research. Yeah, that's um, what I took away from it. <laughs> yeah. But also, uh, you know, generally as a society that we really need to be supporting pregnant women and to be providing prenatal care and thinking of that as like the first part of a child's life and not assuming that nurture and care begins at birth because it actually, the the nine months between conception and birth are actually an incredibly important developmental stage. And we need to be caring for our children during that time, just as much as we do after they're born. Good. That's that's a good message and that's a good note to end it on. So um, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Fascinating. I'd like to have you come back on another time to to continue this conversation. Um, And uh, The Extended Mind, that's the book. Where should, where Mm -hmm. can people find it? Uh, They can find it any, any, at any bookseller online. And they can also um, check out the resources I have at my website, which is www.anniemurphypaul.com. Okay, guys. Go to the website, get the book. I'm telling you, it's it's uh, even if you're not into that kind of stuff, it's really interesting. Um, I really enjoyed it and uh, I, I appreciate it. So thank you for coming on. Thank you, Matt. Thanks.